This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically-minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. The Gateless Barrier, Case 41, Bodhidharma Pacifies the Mind. Bodhidharma Faced the Wall. The second ancestor <coughs> stood in the snow, cut off his arm and said, Your disciple's mind has no peace as yet. I beg you, Master, please put it to rest. Bodhidharma said, Bring me your mind, and I will put it to rest. The second ancestor said, I have searched for my mind, but I cannot find it. Bodhidharma said, I have completely put it to rest for you. In the uh, commentary of this case, uh, we're given an extended version of that uh, story, filling in some of the colorful details. It was winter. Day and night, Shen Quang stood before Bodhidharma's cave, beseeching him for instruction. The old barbarian, however, sat in Zazen and paid no attention. One night there was a snowstorm, but Shen Quang stood there, unmoving, and the snow reached his knees. Finally, Bodhidharma said, You've been standing there a long time in the snow. What is it that you want? Shen Quang said, I beseech you, Master, open the gate of the Dharma and save all of us beings. Bodhidharma said, The incomparable truth of the Buddhas can only be attained by constant striving, practicing what cannot be practiced, bearing the unbearable. How can you, with your small virtue and wisdom, with your easygoing and conceited mind, dare aspire to the true teaching? With this it is said, Shen Quang drew a knife, cut off his hand, and presented it to Bodhidharma, who relented it at last, accepted him as a disciple, giving him the name by which he is known today, Uiko, Light of Wisdom. I thought it fitting that uh, before reading this koan, I should have you all sit outdoors <laughs> just for 25 minutes on a nice autumn day, not in a snowstorm. It's not asking you endure too much in order to hear this Tay show. <laughs> of course, I'm not Bodhidharma either. Uh, the ancients would probably say, you get what you pay for. <laughs> <laughs> or they would actually say that uh, what you attain is in proportion to what you're prepared to sacrifice. And this uh, 
story or parable, which is probably uh, not historically the case, nonetheless is a, comes down to us as a model of the sacrifice demanded upon us to, to, in this practice. I actually like to think of it as a dream, one that embodies our picture, uh, an extreme picture of what we think is involved in sacrifice and surrender and acceptance by a teacher. And as such, it contains uh, psychologically, I think, uh, a lot of very subtle and difficult issues, uh, which I can only touch on a little bit. But I think that we can use the imagery here, uh, not literally, not literally as a sense that unless you're willing to cut off your arm, you're not the real thing, right? but to try to get a sense emotionally of what uh, notions of sacrifice uh, and surrender mean to us. See, in a sense, when we come to Sashin, uh, we're symbolically asked to make a sacrifice. Not to cut off our hand, but to cut off our sense of choice and control. We, we, we are willing to give up. And a hand is a good symbol of control, right? Of being able to grasp something and do what we want with it. Well, to come to Seshin, we have to voluntarily give that up. And it can be in very simple ways, like we give up control of when we go to sleep and when we get up, what and when we eat, when we're allowed to speak, how long we're going to sit. We give up control of who we sit next to or in what kind of setting. Now, all those can feel like very minor or very big to us. I mean, for some people, you know, not being able to sleep is like cutting off their hand, you know. I mean, really, uh, the, just the physical limitations of Seshin, not just what you endure, but that you have to endure it, that somebody's telling you to endure it, right? That it's not just that you're sleepless, but somebody's going to wake you up. Yeah? See, I think at the most very basic level, we have to be willing to make that sacrifice as not just the price of admission, like being led into Bodhidharma's cave, but really being willing to see that as the practice itself, as part of what we're trying to do is get free of the grip of likes and dislikes. And we see 
when they're interrupted, when we don't have that control, just how strong a grip they have on us. Now, the next, there are a number of levels to this. Uh, and the next we might say is what do we think is going to be demanded of us by a teacher in order to be a student, to be accepted, to be taken seriously? What do we have to give up to get that? What does it mean to become the student of a teacher? What does one submit to in doing that? What does one surrender to in doing that? And that is having to pass through a certain gate of, of trust. Of really being willing to just say yes over and over to whatever is asked. And being asked by someone like me who may not fit your ideal of the perfect enlightened master, but who's the one who's right here in front of you, who you have to come to terms with. This is the opportunity you're given. Are you going to say yes to it? Or are you going to say, well, I'm not so sure. Right? And the dilemma, I think, that uh, we face is that any situation where we have to submit to someone else will bring up for us old uh, memories of traumas and where that submission was uh, hurtful rather than for our benefit. And we really have to face what has been done to us in the past and the fear that we're going to be hurt again rather than helped by this practice. And it's a sad fact that many people have experienced practice in a way that's in fact re-traumatizing. That uh, too often, you know, the student comes and is willing to cut off at hand to be uh, a student of that teacher. The teacher looks at it and says, well, how about up to the elbow? Right? that it's never enough. Or that the teacher has a sense that uh, everybody should just be able to do the same thing, very cookie-cutter-like, right? No variation, no difference. In Japan, the motto is the nail that, gets, that sticks up gets hammered down. And the hammering down is the training, right? Well, sometimes that's very beneficial and sometimes you just end up with a lot of bent nails. Doesn't go so smoothly. So we have to be aware of the amount of trust that's involved 
in this kind of relationship. And we have to be honest and aware of the danger of, of being hurt and being disappointed and feeling like something is being done to me instead of for me. And when that happens, we have to be able to, I think, have a relationship with the teacher where we can bring that up and really expose it and have that work through and acknowledge. It's not uh, part of what you got to do with traditional Japanese teachers, uh, but I think it's absolutely necessary uh, in a psychologically minded practice here in America. The other aspect, though, of this dream, this parable, though, uh, that I think touches many people deeply is this, this aspect of self-sacrifice or self-mutilation, really, in the name of practice. Many of you have uh, read or heard me talk about notions of curative fantasy or pathological accommodations, but what I'm saying this kind of image uh, means to me is that uh, the things that I see people doing to themselves in the name of practice is often... Uh, much more mutilating than anything that's actually demanded of them by the practice. That what people do in the service of their own curative fantasy is say, I have to cut off some part of myself. I have to cut off my anger, my feelings, my needs, my desire for love, my sexuality. And God knows religion is often very guilty of colluding with this kind of fantasy that some part of ourselves is profane and needs to be cut off if we're going to be able to reach the sacred 